Well, take your Bibles tonight and go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We are in our series that we have entitled Resolved, and tonight we're going to be looking at resolving to possess and to have a fearless faith, and we're looking at a very, very familiar story to a lot of us, and yet maybe the first time that some who are here tonight have heard this story, and I love that we have both of those in our service on this Sunday evening, and we are not going to finish this message, I will tell you ahead of time, we are not going to finish it. We might get through the introduction, the introduction is a little extended, and I am going to read the whole text because I think that it's important for us to uh, to, to get the whole story and to be able to hear it all put together. And I want you to take away the fact that you're very familiar with the story and I want you to put yourself in the story tonight and to think about it because each and every one of us, even though this is a familiar story, it is something that is lacking in our society today and that is a faith that is fearless no matter what our society says No matter what the world says, we are in great need of believers who have a fearless faith to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to let you be seated tonight. I'm going to read all 30 verses together, so stay with me, all right? Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the the princes and the governors and the captains and again all of those people were gathered together into the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up and they stood before the image that he had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of all the instruments and the music, uh, all the people, the nations, the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Verse 8. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the, to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of all the instruments and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falls not down and worships, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and his fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of all the instruments, and you ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. He's giving them another chance here. Well for you. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. 
And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Maybe you want to mark that little phrase. Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flames of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. And he rose up in haste and he spake and said to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire, and the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The introduction is going to be a little bit longer than typically because I believe that it's important to lay a a very important foundation. And actually, the last song that they sang, The Promise, goes right along with this because God never promised that he would give us easy times. He never promised health, wealth, and prosperity. But what he did promise, one of the great promises of Scripture, is this, I will never leave you or forsake you. And we see that demonstrated in this story. And what we have in our text is an incredible faith-building moment in the life of these three young Hebrew boys. This is something that God allowed in their life to build their faith, to strengthen their faith. And as I was studying this, I, I thought about what if when our children were born that we were given, Brother West, a script of their life. 
All the things that they were to go through. What if they, they told you at birth that, that Bill would have the tumor? What if they told you at, at birth all the difficulties and all the trials and all the hard things and you had five minutes to go back into that script and erase all the things that you did not want them to go through? What would you erase? What would you leave? Maybe it's the learning disability that made education very hard for your children. Maybe it was the teenage friendship uh, that, that they were hurt by the betrayal of, or perhaps the accident that caused them to spend years recovering from. And of course, I couldn't think as I was thinking about this uh, for Kim and I specifically, uh, the liver disease and the hospital visits and the cleft lip and all the things that our sons went through. If I would go back and erase all of those things, and if you would have asked me 15 years ago, I may have said, yes, I'll erase a lot of those things. But the older I get, the more I realize, Miss Nadine, that it is those things that God uses to be the faith-building moments in their life. That today they are the young men and in the future they will be the young men that God wants them to be and they will serve him and they will have a platform that they would not have had before because of what they experienced that was a faith-building moment. This is a faith-building moment in the lives of these three teenage or young, I don't know if they were teenage, but young men. I understand more now than I did, that the most important things, listen, the most important things, Travis, in our children's life is not the physical things, it is the spiritual things. So many times we, we assess the blessings of God and we talk about the blessings of God and when we do so, automatically our minds think about physical blessings, about our houses and our cars. Listen, there's much more that God has blessed us with than physical things. Let us thank Him for the spiritual blessings that we have. As the children of God, I present this evening that the the same is true in our, our, our lives as Christians, that God is building us through trials. That's why James wrote in James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Or literally, it means they're multicolored trials, all kinds of different trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect or mature and entire, wanting nothing. It is indeed these moments that God uses to build our faith, to strengthen us, to, to turn our eyes onto that which is really important in this life. And we live in this American Christian culture that looks at God as a genie and uh, he, all we have to do is request things for him and, and he only wants us to have what is great and good and he, all he wants for us is wealth and health. And I, I say this often, but I say it again, that that message is an anti-biblical message. In fact, Joel Osteen, who pastors a megachurch in Houston, Texas, wrote in his bestseller, Your Best Life Now, If you make these positive faith declarations one a day, you will be blessed beyond your normal salary. God will suddenly change things in your life 
Speak your destiny into existence. Use my book for declaring your victory each day. Declare health. Declare favor. Declare abundance. And what is amazing to me is that 8 million people bought the book. God never promised that this would be our best life. We are not living our best life now. Our best life is to come. The best is still to come. This is lottery theology, which is why people are lining up to, to, to buy into it so in hopes that they will hit the jackpot. It's so important to have a biblical view of eternity and life. What is your best life in the mind of God? If this is what you're hoping is your best life, you're living for something very empty. Now, for the lost person, this is your best life. I mean, the next life is bad for you. This is as good as it gets. But for the child of God, this isn't even close to our best life. Not even close. What is most important to God is not that we never have to go to the doctor. It's not that we never have to worry about finances. What is most important to God is that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes what that means is that he needs to dismantle our lives. I'm sure these three Hebrew boys would have loved to have just spoken this situation out of existence. But God allowed them to go through this so that it would be a faith-building moment in their life so that they would depend upon God like never before. So that they would see the power of God. Let, let me ask you, what would these type of preachers that we're, we've talked about say to the North Korean Christians who were headed out or, or were taken out into the streets 50 years ago under the order of Kim Il-sung to be run over by bulldozers? Thousands of believers crushed to death, listen, not because they lacked faith, but because they would not deny their faith. Because they had strong faith. This has been the message of Satan from the very beginning. Eve, you can have it all if you will just listen to me. You can have it all. You can be greater than God. When Jesus himself was tempted by Satan, Satan told Jesus that he really shouldn't be hungry. Just take these stones and turn them into bread and just, just speak it and make it happen. Speak words of favor and blessing. Please hear me tonight, church. When, when Paul wrote the letters to the churches and believers in the first century, what he emphasized was that the end of suffering and rest and comfort are indeed guaranteed, but not in this life. What Paul wanted to stress was that we are to live this temporary, sin-tainted world from an eternal perspective, not looking for the best life now, but for the best life later. Which is why Paul or Peter, excuse me, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. What health is there now compared to a glorified body? What wealth is there now compared to streets? That are, that are made of where the pavement is gold. 
What comfort is there now compared to being in the very presence of Jesus and to experience for eternity the comfort and peace that he brings? Studard Kennedy was a chaplain in World War I and he left behind a wife and a small son to minister to soldiers who were fighting in France. And from the trenches of France in the midst of a very intense battle, he wrote a letter to his son. And here's, his, here's what he says to his son. Son, the first prayer I want you to learn to say for me is, is not God keep daddy safe. The first prayer I want you to learn is God make daddy brave. And if he has heard, if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Life and death don't matter, my son. Right and wrong do. If daddy is dishonored before God, that is something too awful for words. I suppose you would like to put in a bit about safety too, and mother would like that. Well, put it in afterwards, always afterwards, for it doesn't matter nearly as much. It doesn't, does it? Why? Because this life is short, it's brief. And then eternity Many people think that Peter was thinking about this story in Daniel chapter 3 when he wrote under the inspiration of Scripture in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. A literal a trial by fire that we read about in Daniel chapter 3. This is a narrative, so the outline will follow the format. And let me just give you the first point and talk for just a moment about it, and then we'll close. There's going to be several points, five or six points, and we'll just mention the first one tonight. We see, first of all, the ungodly dedication. Babylon has taken these Hebrew boys captive along with all that was left in the nation of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar has made an idol, an image of gold that was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And this is a God that Nebuchadnezzar has had made identifying himself as really a God and commanding that all the high-ranking people in Babylon Empire fall down and essentially, essentially worship him. Nebuchadnezzar was simply doing what all men tend to do who don't know God, and that is they worship themselves. Why? Because God, listen church, God has made us worshipers. God has put it in us to worship. And when we fail or we refuse to worship God, make no mistake about it, we will worship something. We look at all around the world at all the, the different people groups and all the, the gods that are there. Why? Because it is in them to worship something. God has created us to be worshipers. But when we refuse to worship him, our heart automatically finds something else or someone else to worship. And that's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse number 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, listen, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And whenever man invents or prescribes or defines his own God, he makes him into the kind of God that he wants him to be. Psalm 115, the psalmist wrote, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar said? Where is your God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They, listen, they that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. This is a good definition of idolatry. It is the corruption of true worship. Idolatry is the corruption of true worship. And from the very beginning, man has always set up his false gods. The conflict between the worship of the true God and the worship of false gods. And we see it here. Leslie Flynn wrote this. Like the flow of a river which cannot be stopped but which can be diverted. The yearning of man's soul for an object to worship can easily turn from the true God to another God. And we know how easily that happens, don't we? We see it happen. The first of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus deals with idolatry. Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation and them that hate me and listen before you say listen I don't have any idols in my house I don't have any things that I worship you may not have the little figures but if we're not careful all of us can allow idols to creep into our life an idol is anything that we put above the preeminence of God say how do how do we measure that look at your time look at your treasure look at what you invest in Perhaps there's something that we've given our our life to that is more important to us than God. Forty years ago, Andrew Blackwood, who was a past professor at Princeton, said this. America has, this is 40 years ago, America has these following gods. Self, money, pleasure, sex, romance, amusements, sports, and education. I think we could still say that today, right? We need a return to the first commandment in the light of the cross. We need to turn our eyes back to the cross. We need to be reminded tonight as we look at these three Hebrew boys who had a situation arise in their life that God used to build their faith. 
And we need to determine as a church, and young people, you need to determine in the day and age in which you're growing up in, that you are going to have fearless faith. That you're going to give your life completely committed to God. I won't go through them all. Well, let me just mention them, and then we'll close. They're there. These are not in your text. These are just things that I thought about that I think are gods that we fight Gods that we struggle with in 21st century America. The God of possessions. The God of possessions. Did you know that covetousness is idolatry? The question is, are we seeking to be rich toward God or rich toward possessions? What about the God of pride? Trying to draw people to us. Trying to draw attention to us. Trying to build our own kingdom. What about the God of other people? Boy, I could park here for a while. It's okay to love your spouse and it's okay to love your children. But there are a lot of people who have made their own family their God. That is, they put them above their relationship with God. A friendship. The God of possessions, the God of pride, the God of other people, the God of pleasure. So many people in America and even Christians, they they simply live for the next vacation, for the next moment, for the next pleasure. As if that somehow is going to fill the void. It won't. It won't. Do we need to get away and rest? Absolutely. God made us for that purpose. But it ought to have, every time we do, an eternal purpose behind it. And that is to refresh and revive not only our bodies, but our spirits. And then I thought about the God of politics. That's a big one in our our world, isn't it? So how do I know if I worship God? Well, if 90% of your social media posts are about politics and none of them are about the gospel, I would say that might be a God in your life. An idol. Or the God of prominence. Some people want to be the chairman of every committee. The disciples had this problem, didn't they? The chief positions... The who's who's. Listen, all of these gods end up in the trash heap of an empty, burned out life, if that's what you give your life to. Which is why Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ. And when for us to live is Christ, then to die is what? Gain. For me to live is Christ. And when that's true, then to die, to die is gain. Let's pray together. I want to ask you just while you're there, we're not going to give a formal invitation this evening, but just where you are, I would ask you to pray a prayer of commitment to the Lord. I would ask you to to pray that God would Give you, young people, fearless faith that is willing to stand against society and that you would be able to say, as these boys did, 
We believe God will deliver us, but if, it, if he doesn't, be sure of this, we will not bow to your gods. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds, that we would live this life, this temporary life, with an eternal perspective. And I pray, God, that you would give us fearless faith. I pray, God, that even the situations and the things that you allow into our life, that we would not despise them. But we would surrender ourselves to them and we would look for ways in which you're trying to conform us to your image through them. We pray, God, that you would help us to be a people who stand for you, stand with you. And we pray, Lord, that through that people will be drawn to you. This is a sobering reminder tonight for all of us of how easily it is for idols, idols of possessions and pride and promotion, positions, politics, all these things to creep into our life. Guard us from it. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Keep us focused upon you each and every day. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us and direct us, we pray. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Reminds me of a, a story of a little boy whose parents had a figure of Jesus in his house, in their house and they couldn't figure out where to, to put the figure. There's a little image of Jesus doing miracles and one day he came home, the little boy came home and it was in the living room. The next week he came home and mom had moved it to the kitchen. The next week he came home and somebody had moved it into the basement And the little boy, they're sitting at dinner, and he says, Daddy, where are we going to put God this week? You know, that's true in many homes. Where are we going to put God this week? Is he going to be at the very top? Is he going to be preeminent? Is he going to be chief? Is he going to be the Lord of our life? Or are we going to allow other things to creep in and to steal our joy?